I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. In our last conversation, we heard from leaders of the National Equity Project on what it means to create equitable learning environments for all children, providing each child with what they need to be successful. On this episode, we hear from students, two students who are youth advocates for the National Equity Project. What do they say young people need to be successful? How do they view the education system? Who do they think it is designed for? And what critical pieces do they see as missing? Ana de Almeida Amaral is a Stanford University sophomore studying comparative studies in race and ethnicity with a double major in political science. Micah Daniels is a sophomore at the University of Illinois at Chicago, majoring in neuroscience. Both lead and facilitate engagement with students from 18 school districts across the U.S., helping them advocate for equitable learning in their communities. Anna and Micah have a direct line to what American middle and high school students say they want from their educations today and their ideas for how to get it. One note before we begin, an ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Ana de Almeida Amaral and Micah Daniels. Ana, Micah, thank you both so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. I'm super excited. Why don't we start with both of you telling me about each of you? Where did you grow up? Where are you in school? What are you studying? And of course, how did you get engaged with the National Equity Project? Ana, why don't we start with you? Thanks. So my name is Ana. I am 20 years old, and I'm originally from Chula Vista, California, which is one of the most southern parts of San Diego. So I grew up in a border community in a place that was like full of a lot of Mexican-Americans and Chicanos. And that was like really important for my development of my own identity as a Chicana. I went to high school at High Tech High in Chula Vista, and that was where I really started getting involved with equity work and community organizing. There at High Tech High is where I founded the Ethnic Studies program with two of my comrades, Issa and Luce. And it was through that work, like trying to spread that work and share that work with more people, that I got involved with National Equity Project. We've had like a really wonderful relationship of co-designing for youth liberation and the liberation of all people in schools. Micah, how about you? Well, I am from Oak Park, Illinois, which is a west suburb of Chicago. I literally live two blocks away from Austin, which is a west neighborhood of Chicago. I've lived in the same house my whole entire life. I've gone to Oak Park schools and I graduated high school from Oak Park and River Forest High School. And now I go to the University of Illinois at Chicago and my major currently is neuroscience. Basically how I got connected to the National Equity Project during high school, hmm. I helped found this women in leadership club. I did Black Leaders Union. I did student council. I did like theater a little bit. And I did spoken word. Through all of my different extracurriculars, I often worked with one of my teachers whose name is Avi Lessing. And he really became like a mentor to me, someone that really advocated for me in the school. Because throughout my high school experience, I really had a lot of white proximity. And I was one of few Black people or people of color in all the kind of communities that I was in until I got to Spoken Word and Black Leaders Union. My activism is through my art, I would say, the most. And that's the most passionate part of me. 
Mike, and I want to ask you about your poetry. Also, what a terrific point you make about the power of mentors. I know that you and Anna are doing uh, mentorship and advocacy. What does it mean to be a youth advocate of the National Equity Project, Anna? I would say my biggest role at National Equity Project is being someone that has the closest proximity to the youth that we work with. A lot of, you know, the start of our job is just like building relationships with students, becoming friends with them, and just like building that relationship, especially because everyone who is on our youth advocate team either was in high school last year or was in high school in the last three years. And so my main role is building that relationship and then using that in every space that I walk into. Every time I'm in a National Equity Project meeting, I'm thinking about how would our students feel in this space? And if we're planning like a conference for all of the adults and the students, my job is to really advocate for what do the students need? What do the students want in this space? And how can we make this space one that truly values and centers student experience? And Micah, how about you? Something that we say a lot in our own planning meetings in the youth affinity space whenever we're around youth is that they are the largest stakeholders when it comes to education. So a lot of the time students feel like they don't have a voice or they don't feel empowered or uplifted to make change within their communities or within their schools or they're around adults who act like they're listening and don't really listen. And so I think our job as the advocates is, like Anna said, to really build those relationships. And so that way, if they don't feel comfortable talking to any adults or they don't feel like they're being truly heard or listened to, we could be there to listen to them and help provide them with the resources they need and then go forward by providing them with the help the best way that we can. Anna, give me a little more detail on what exactly you do as a youth advocate. I understand there are circle teams. We're partnered with 18 school districts across the country. And basically what we do is we go in and we set up these circle teams, which are a team of educators who are teachers, classroom teachers, administrators, a superintendent, and students as well. We help them, you know, design these teams and then we help them facilitate equitable and liberatory change in their schools through the circle teams. Part of that is over the summer, we had a youth liberation symposium, which was where all of the students from all the circle teams came and joined us at a conference and we energized the youth. We did a lot of learning. And then we also left the symposium with the artifact of like a list of student demands. What are students thinking they want changed in their school right now? Then students bring those demands into the circle teams and the circle teams work together to try to realize those demands and to make meaningful change towards the vision that students have carved out for what they want for the future. Micah, what were some of the things they were demanding? I worked directly in the youth symposium with Morgan Hill Unified School District. And some things they were saying, for one, what a safe space for people of color or for queer people. So I think what was kind of common in a lot of demands was one, representation, and two, inclusivity. So whether that's like 
gender neutral bathrooms or that's to have a black leaders union or a space where people of color can gather and be comfortable with people that share their similar experiences but those are just a couple examples Anna I don't know if you want to add any more yeah I think a big one is students want to be in the room when decisions are being made they feel like school is happening to them even though, you know, we talk about this a lot, they're the main stakeholders of a school. They're the largest population that enters a school and they're the ones that are like most deeply impacted by schools. They feel like they're not getting a say in what's going on at their school. So that was like a big demand that we saw all the way around, like probably in almost every single district. And then that's also really awesome because that's like part of what the service of a circle team is, right? Is getting students in the room with admin and teachers in a way that positions them as partners in learning and in change. Micah, what does it mean to have living lungs? I feel like this is like from a poem or something. Is this is from a, a poem. This is, is from this a poem from that you wrote. Yes. That I wrote. It was a very powerful poem. I'm glad that you thought so. I think when I wrote that poem, it was about how everyone in the class is mechanical. They feel like they're not real. There was like the one being in my poem that I featured that was like coming more and more alive as the poem went on because they were like realizing what a broken, messed up system they were in that they needed to get out. So I think what are living lungs? That's the awareness that you're stuck in a system that's not benefiting you, that you should do all that you can to escape from. Micah, you used some very powerful language. The system is broken and messed up. What does that mean? I think the system is broken because of that standardization of that conformity and assimilation that schools try to force upon students where they can't even see themselves in the things that they're learning. Their humanity is not recognized. And you're in classrooms where there's this super hierarchical structure. Where you have the teacher who just lectures, and then you have students who listen and regurgitate it back and then get the good grade. And that is not what I think. And I think many other people agree is what school should be about. It should be about liberating students. And by that, I mean, allowing them to see a world where their unique characteristics add to it, to be taught in a way where their strengths and their specific qualities that only they have are shown that they can make a difference in the world and this world belongs to them as it does anyone else. That's what I would say. I meant by it's broken and it's messed up because when you have students that are going to school and they feel like school is not a safe space and they are having panic attacks over test grades, they don't feel comfortable telling their teachers when they're struggling or they're having a hard time at home and that comes out in the way that they behave in school or something like that. And then you just have people who are quick to discipline them, quick to not recognize that there are deeper things happening, that school may not be their number one priority, that they have a whole life that school is part of, but also might not be, you know, number one on the list. They should be in places where they're given support to deal with the things that are happening in their life, where everything that they're struggling with, everything that they're passionate about is supported and fostered. And that's not where we're at in school right now. I appreciate that so much, Micah. I think my dream, when I talk about liberatory schools and liberatory education, my dream is that students walk into school and feel like they're being seen as a whole person? Are we seeing students as whole people who make mistakes and are deserving of forgiveness? 
Or are we seeing them as beings in our institution that only have value when they are conforming to our standards or conforming to our rules? And so the dream is that students can come into school and feel like they are a whole person. And not only is that like honored and respected, but like that's the goal of being there. I dream of an education system that gives students agency. The most like meaningful education that I ever got was one that I felt like I had to turn around and I had to tell everyone. Like I was like, this is so important. Like everyone needs to know this. And like when I walked down the street, I was like looking at things and I was like, this connects to exactly what I'm learning, right? Like this feels important. This feels like it's meaningful in my life. I feel like I have to do something with it. Anna, I read where you wrote that all ethnic studies students can tell you about their moment of awakening, the moment when they learned something that changed the way they see the world. What was your moment? Oh, it's hard to pick just one, but I think the first real moment I remember like feeling truly transformed by my education was in the ethnic studies class that I helped found. We had this like ritual that we would do every single day. At the end of the class, we would all like circle up by the door and we would do a unity clap, which is like a ritual that started during the United Farm Workers Movement. It was a way that they opened and closed organizing spaces. But basically, it's like a clap that happens in unison. At the end, we like do one really strong clap together. And once we hit that last clap, our space is closed and and we leave and like we go out into the world. That moment to me is so sacred because it's like standing in a circle of people who I feel like really saw who I was and like not only saw who I was, but loved me really deeply and like I trusted them very deeply. And and they were people that like I had done such deep, profound learning about myself, about my history, about the history of my ancestors that I felt like we were just in such a deep unity and solidarity that like this clap just like I felt like it rang through the entire world and like all of space and all of time. That's really how powerful it felt to me. That is like a really sacred moment in which like I feel, you know, the first time that it happened, I felt transformed. And every time that like I get to go back to that ethnic studies class, like participate in the unity club, I feel truly transformed. Do the students that you work with today, do they feel seen in their classes? I don't think all of them feel seen. I think it's really hard to feel seen as like a student of color or as like a queer student or as a disabled student. Because there's a lot of the way that school runs, like the way that school is structured that was created to make us feel invisible or to make us silent. Like most people of color can tell you that they've never once learned about anyone that looks like them. Or like in my case, the only time I looked like the people in my textbooks was when we were talking about them as like victims of genocide and like a justified genocide that was for the greater good. And that's like super damaging. And other than that, like in all of my history books, people like me just didn't exist. And so to feel seen was to be reminded that like I'm powerful because all of the people that came before me are extremely powerful and did so much. And I think our students right now are working really hard to try to make each other feel seen. That's something that I really love about like our youth affinity space, which is a meeting that we have once a month, which is where like we gather with all of the youth from all the different districts that we work with. So like students from Washington all the way to New Jersey, 
we get together on this Zoom call and we like hang out and talk about how our organizing is going. And that's like a place that I feel like people are really seeing each other. People are celebrating each other's work. They're celebrating the organizing that their friend is doing, even though they've like never met in person and they're on the other side of the country. But I think students are working really hard right now to make each other feel seen because they don't often feel seen in their classrooms. Micah, does that resonate with you? I would definitely say so, yeah. The high school students and some are middle school as well that we have in the youth affinity space, they're all at different levels of their organizing, but there's always support coming from all sides, which is just amazing. Like in our most recent meeting, there is one person who was doing like a ton of work and the other students, their reaction to the work that that other student was doing was like the most genuine and authentic joy. And they were just so happy. And I think also inspired by the work that this person was putting in. And I just hope that the youth affinity space can grow and we'll have more and more students that join and more and more students that join, you know, the circle teams, which is how we're connected. What do students want from their education? They just want education and school to be made for everyone. A lot of the time, school is just made for this system of success that is not made for people of color and queer people and disabled people and instead leaves them out on the margins. And I think that we're all just fighting for an education system that is inclusive to every single kind of student. And it's so weird how school is such a standardized thing. We're all human beings and we all learn in different ways. And we all have different backgrounds and we each explore the world and, you know, participate in our lives in completely different ways. And at a place where there's such formative years like school, where a lot of students are discovering who they are or who they want to be, and they're like pushed to fit into these boxes and molds that were not built for them and often work to break them down and work against them. The complete like standardization of we're just teaching you what you need to teach in order to get an A. I'm going to teach you this, that, and that so you can regurgitate it back to me to get a good grade so you can get a good score so you can go to a quote-unquote good college and then get a quote-unquote good job or we just measure your level of success based on the amount of money you make. Like That was not what I wanted <laughs> out of school. I wanted to just be there to learn about the world and learn about how I can participate in the world in a way that I felt was most powerful. Like I wanted school to tell me like, you matter for the way you are. You shouldn't have to change to fit any kind of system so you can quote unquote succeed in a way that was not built for you. And I think like the students that we're working with now want that too. I resonate with that really deeply, Micah. So I have like two answers to that. The Please. first is like Paulo Freire in Pedagogy of the Oppressed talks about how education can either be this tool that like creates social reproduction. Like you will either come in and like be indoctrinated with all of these ideas like Micah is talking about or school can be revolutionary. Like school can teach you how to like expand your mind in ways that go past all of these ideas of what oppressive norms and realities should be. When I was going to school, that's what I wanted. I didn't want to sit in a classroom and be taught in a way that did not align with the real values that I had about justice and like liberation and humanity. And so that kind of like connects to my second answer, which is I think students want a school that is created to function in a way that values them. 
right now, school functions in a way that values like domestication. It values compliance. It values conformity. Like the way that you do well in school is you do exactly what you're told in the way that you're told. You do well on the test because you study the exact material that you're told to study. You say exactly what you're supposed to say, and that will lead you to like all of these pathways to success, right? I don't want to be part of an education system that values conformity and domestication and complacency. I want to be part of an institution of a community that values humanity and justice and radical love. A lot of the students come into the affinity space and they say these like wildly radical things that I love. They're like, there should never be any homework ever. And I love it because like a lot of adults are like, oh, like, kids hate responsibility or whatever ideas they have of young people. But then they turn around and they're like, what I want to do is I want to go home and I want to get involved in my community. I wish I didn't have to sit at home at my desk so I could go and like work in a community garden or like be part of a club, you know, at my local boys and girls club or YMCA or whatever. Like these students are really pushing the boundaries of like what we believe should be happening at our schools in a way that's really easy to dismiss. It's really easy to dismiss those big radical ideas because we think they're unfounded. But like when we just give them time to speak and we just listen, we learn that like these young people have these beautiful radical ideas. Anna, the ideas that you're talking about right there, there are plenty of parents, there are plenty of administrators, there are plenty of school boards who would say, that's crazy talk. That's not what school is about. And you might not be seen in a specific way, but you're going to change the system in a way that's going to benefit you and hurt my kid. What would you say to those parents or administrators or school boards? I think the first thing that I always tell people is go and sit down in an ethnic studies class and see what you learn in an ethnic studies class. A lot of time that I spent, you know, in my ethnic studies education was not learning about just like Latino or indigenous people of Mexico. I spent a lot of time studying Black history. I spent a lot of time studying Filipino history and Asian American history. And all of those things deeply impacted my perspective. They impacted my perspective of myself, of my peers. It allowed me to like build relationships with other people in ways that I couldn't have before because I didn't really know the entire history of the way that our communities have been in solidarity for generations. And so I really think that absolutely everyone has so much to gain from an ethnic studies curriculum and from a liberatorily designed education because a lot of radical black lesbian feminists have mapped this out for us before. I'm definitely not the first person to say this, but when we center the most marginalized in our community, absolutely everyone benefits. When we center, you know, black trans women, everyone of every gender, of every, you know, sexuality, of every race benefits because we are able to create liberation for the people who are most marginalized and everyone benefits. I've had a lot of white people say that to me. It's not just people of color that suffer from white supremacy. It's not just students that suffer from the hierarchy of education. Like our teachers suffer too. Like what kind of dehumanization do we have to put on everyone in order for them to believe these things about each other, right? And I think that's what I really love about the way that we work together at National Equity Project. And don't get me wrong, it's a lot of work to get there. But the way we can get students and administrators and teachers to like see each other as real people 
and want to work together in a way that's like this stride to like a beautiful vision of liberation is so beautiful because it like releases them from the change of this like hierarchy of school oppression on every aspect. Like the administrators are liberated, the teachers are liberated, and the students are liberated from not having to exist within this system anymore of hierarchy. And Micah, what would your commentary be? That question just just reminds me of a situation that was happening in my high school and currently is happening in my high school. In those honors classes and in those AP classes, it was like, from my own personal experience, it seemed like it was 90% white people. I did a lot of honors and AP classes, and there was max like three other Black people in my classes. And this is a school that's like 30% Black, which is not okay at all. And then I just remember when we were having a conversation in one of my classes about detracking, and this girl was like, I don't want to detrack because that means that I'll be losing the ability to gain more knowledge by being in classes where they're teaching at a lower level. And then she was like, I need like, that's why honor classes need to stay because I need honors level like of difficulty. I just had to speak up. So then I was like, you realize in these honors and AP classes, it's majority white people. So then is your opinion that all of these white people that are in our classes compared to the diverse majority Black population that's in non-honors courses, do you think that all of these white people are more capable than all of these Black people? And then she had nothing to say in response because she probably didn't even realize that implicit bias that she had like so deeply rooted. And there is literally statistics that that when students help each other, when you teach people, you become more knowledgeable. And when you're the one being taught, you become more knowledgeable as well. I just think that like when you're in a school system where it's inclusive and representative of every student that's in that school and every student that's not in that school, you have people growing from every level all the time. And like Anna said, like once the most oppressed people are liberated, like once I as a black woman am liberated, then every single white woman is liberated too, because if I'm free, then they're free as well. Um, and so when it comes to like discussions like detracking, and then of course you have those, those, um, stigmas where it's like, you're in the honors class. So you're in the smart class, you're in the non-honors class, so you're in the stupid class. So then you have a bunch of, um, black and brown people thinking that they're just inherently less intelligent than these white people that are in these mm-hmm. honors classes. But really it's just what their parents decide. And a lot of them weren't given the resources to know how to advocate for themselves and understand their own intelligence and own capability. And this is just like a really random thing. But when people like travel the world, they talk about how being globally minded completely changes their perspective and how they view the world and how they view other people. And I think you can be globally minded by just talking to the people in your community and watching how your perspective grows like crazy. So it's it's sometimes hard to reach the people who are in opposition to more inclusive education and more liberatory education. But I would say, like Anna said, like, let's just give it a shot. Like, just try maybe like we put it in a little microcosm, like an ethnic studies class. You see how it changes students of a super diverse set and see how much they feel seen, how much they feel represented and how much more capable and encouraged they seem they are. And hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, that would cause them to change their opinion. I want to add to that. Like when you break it down like that, 
like when you break down a school structure like that, like tracking, it becomes really, really clear how committed school institutions are to white supremacy. Like a school is committed to white supremacy, that they have a structure of how they track students that like literally enforces it Mm -hmm. and has been enforcing it for like years. And so that's a big part of our work, I feel like, is revisiting all of these structures that we have in our school and determining what do they really value and what do we want them to value. I don't know about you guys, but I think most people don't want to be in school institutions that value white supremacy. I hope so. Anna, what is your vision of liberatory education? Liberated to do what? Liberated to be what? And how would you answer concern around questions of curriculum or rigor when you talk about a liberatory education? So a liberatory education is an education that allows young people to be seen as fully human when they walk into their schools. I think what that looks like, a lot of people are like, okay, practically, what does that look like? I get that concern. I really do. But I think the main work of trying to define what liberatory education looks like is rethinking literally everything. And so how can I make a structure that really tells the students these are the values, right? And then also just telling them. In my experience here at college, like I I had a professor, and I know this is different because it's university, but who said, I trust that she was talking about her attendance policy. She said, I trust that being here is important to you. And so if you are absent, I trust that it, it it's because something happened. And if you'd like to share that with me, thank you. And I was in her class every single day, right? What she showed me is that she valued that I was serious about her class and I cared about my learning and I care deeply about my education. And so I think that's the work of of transforming into a liberatory education is rethinking what are the values that we are showing in the education structures that we have right now and what do we want them to really tell? When we're talking about curriculum, again, when you have little or like no curriculum that shares the histories and perspectives of people of color, the values that you are sharing are that people of color don't exist, their lives were not important, and they did not do anything to contribute to history. That's really painful and really damaging. What are the values that we want our students to get out of a history education? For me, I wanted to get a history education that made me feel like I could be connected to movements that were important. I know my people were there, you know, like fighting for the farm workers movement and making sure that they could have the rights and, you know, the the wages that they deserved. I wanted to to see that Aside from struggle, like my people created beautiful art and they were like beautiful mathematicians and they knew so much about like space and, and math and science. That's something that I hope to, to get out of my education. And I don't think a lot of students feel that right now. What guidance would you give? What insight would you offer to a superintendent, to a school board, maybe to parents? about what you are hearing from students that is something tangible, what would be the first thing you would suggest that those people in positions of authority do to close the gap between where their schools are now and where the students that you work with want their schools to be? Anna, why don't we start with you? I think the very first thing that, like you said, people in positions of authority and power Like the first thing that they need to do is recognize what position that they're in. Like we need to start thinking about schools like we think about any other system of oppression, right? If you are a man living in a cis heteropatriarchy, like 
you got to sit down and you have to think really deeply. What do I gain from patriarchy? And because I gain from a system of oppression, what responsibility do I have to dismantling it? Same with white people. Like you have to sit down, you have to think about what do I gain from racism? And now what responsibility do I have to being an ally in changing that? Administrators, teachers, adults in school institutions, you gain from a system of oppression that marginalizes young people. What do you have to gain from that system? A lot of times it's control. It's power over other people. And now what responsibility do you have to deconstructing that and changing that? Micah? I once again second what Anna says. That's a wonderful point. They definitely have to recognize the power that they have. And with it, like, of course, when you're in a position of power and authority, you just automatically become an oppressor in some ways. And so they have to realize that as soon as they step into the presence of students, those students are not going to feel comfortable to be themselves. They're not going to feel safe to address their concerns. So I would like to, to tell them to create that environment could be a, a really difficult task to do like right away. But I would say one thing that is tangible and probably not too difficult is whenever there's decision makers, there's a group of people who are deciding what's what, make sure that there are students there um, and not just your students that are getting A's and that are the, the favorites of every single teacher because they're the ones that are always participating and, you know, getting the best grade. You want students that represent every single part of the school that they are in charge of and have authority in and make sure that you are listening to their concerns and you welcome the, their concerns you don't become defensive when they share how they feel and you really help them feel listened to. All of our educators and teachers like come into this work because they love young people. Like I've never met a teacher that like does not like young people or like is not in education because they like really believe that like this is where important work happens. And so it's like there's a lot of dissonance in that, like knowing that like I came into this work because like this is so deeply important to me. And then to realize that like I'm someone that might be causing harm in in places, not because I am doing bad things, but because the system dehumanizes all of us. Right. Like, again, like everyone is harmed when a system of oppression is in our space and, and rules our community. And so I think like really recognizing that and like like Micah said, like. Anytime that you're like, I don't know if we should have students in the room for this, have students in the room. I've worked with so many educators. They're like, we're not ready. Like, we're not ready to bring students in. The students are going to completely change the perspective. Like, you may be thinking, like, this is what's wrong with our school. And students are going to walk in and, like, completely unveil an entire side of an entire perspective that you have not even thought of yet. And that's because they are the main stakeholders in schools. They are the ones that come here every day and really are impacted by all of the decisions that are being made at a larger level. So bring those students in and most importantly, like build meaningful relationships with them. That is how these dialogues, how these, you know, how these critical conversations happens. It's by, by building relationships with each other that trust that like we're both like our educators are here because they love young people and because they want to make meaningful change. And our students are here because they really want to make meaningful change and they love their community as well. Anna, Micah. 
Thank you. Thank you for uh, this dialogue and critical conversation. And thank you for the work that you guys do with uh, students all over the country. Thank you for having us. That was my conversation with Ana de Almeida Amaral and Micah Daniels. My thanks to Ana and Micah for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.